You're going through an intense period in your big job. You're stressed, you're reactive, and because it's so hectic right now, you've stopped doing all the things that fill your energy tank. There's just no time. You've just got to get through to the holidays. You know in your heart of hearts that this can't go on, but it's actually really inconvenient to know that right now. There's been intense times before, and you've managed to push through somehow. So even if your body is sending up red flags, you're questioning how red flaggy they actually are. Secretly, you believe that it's a superpower of yours to be able to push this hard. It sets you apart. It's made you successful. So yeah, this is just another one of those times, right? Hmm. Then something unexpected happens, and you realize you've actually got to stop this time. These are the leadership conversations I wish I would have had when I was forced to stop. My brick wall moment was severe burnout, and yours might be something else. Redundancy, divorce, a new boss you can't stand, or maybe you got sick or had an accident. And here you are laid up thinking, ugh, now what? If you're a person hardwired to achieve, a forced slowdown can feel like a death. What's going through your mind? What are you feeling? Is there anything hopeful at all to cling to? Before we dive in, welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. This is a show for anyone whose life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside you're hanging by a thread and almost no one would know. This episode is especially close to my heart because so much of it resonates with my own burnout after leaving my finance career, and in spite of being well-loved by my family, it was one of the loneliest, most difficult times in my life as I struggled to figure out who I was without my impressive job title. One of this year's most downloaded episodes is number 53 with ex-litigator and firefighter Shannon Sedlicek. Many of you resonated with Shannon's story of how her law career had taken over her life and how she knew the machine was turning her into a person that she didn't like. Deep down, she knew she needed to do something else, but there's this weird denial period, right? This reckoning with the self. Maybe it's not that bad. There's all the sunk cost. It's going to pass. It always passes. If you didn't listen to episode 53 yet, don't worry. This one will still make sense, but do go back and queue it up after this one. It is pure gold. I brought Shannon back by popular demand to take us deeper into a specific part of her story. So for those of you who haven't listened to the previous episode, Shannon was painting her house on a really, really high ladder and she fell off and she was severely injured. She was in recovery, but as her body and her back healed, her identity was falling apart. There are some really raw revelations in this episode, but I don't leave you dangling. There's always something practical that you can try if you're in the uncertainty of the what's next. Ready? Let's dive in. As a litigator, it's interesting the law moves so slowly, but when you practice law, everything is at speed. So you're working obnoxious hours them off. There's very little sleep. I once had a fantasy that I would have some sort of a Murphy bed in my office 
so that I could literally sleep, shower at the gym and be back in my office and I wouldn't have to commute. I'm forgetting about the fact that I had a dog and kind of a life, but those, those ridiculous thoughts came up. And I do recall very clearly quite early on when I practiced law that this is not sustainable. I cannot continue to do this. And yet I had this overwhelming sense, but I have spent all this time, all this blood, all this sweat, and all these tears to get here. And any sort of wiggling out of that tunnel, that intensity tunnel, felt like quitting. It felt like I would lose if I stepped aside. And my whole being was so wrapped up in hyperachievement that then who would I be if I stepped aside? Who would I be without gunning for and getting that next level achievement? And of course, the, the time comes when the wheels fall off. And you, you know, for me, it was an injury. Um, having a dream that I fell off a ladder and then falling off the ladder, um, seriously injuring myself, forcing me to lie still, forcing me to reevaluate so many parts of my life that were not working. And really the hardest recognition, I think, that I came to during that time was that my, my burning desire to achieve was really wrapped up in getting my mom to love me, to notice me, to see me. And it was gut-wrenching to recognize that, oh my God, like this isn't going to happen. There's, there's no amount of excelling. There's no amount of next stepping that is going to give me the love that I yearn for. It is not going to happen. And then it's all about, but then who am I? My whole life and my whole identity was wrapped up in being this shiny lawyer on the outside with this fabulous looking life. And I was so miserable on the inside for so many reasons. When I finally ended up getting injured and stepping away, you know, I, I couldn't work for two years. I chose not to work for two years. But the overwhelming feeling that I had was that I had quit, that I had lost. Like it was some sort of an athletic event that I had walked off the field from, that I had chosen in some way to leave that was so unacceptable, unacceptable in my hyper-achievement mind to actually pull the plug and say, I'm, I'm done with this. I can't actually do this to myself anymore. And this is not the place where I'm going to bring the parts of me that are going to do good in the world. I have to find something else. Having no idea, no idea what that would be or what it was. But I did, I had this overwhelming sense of being a loser. Like just like I failed was the overwhelming sense that I had um, during those two years. And I remember at one point, I've always been an entrepreneur and I, I tried to start a training business. 
this is back. Well, this is really going to date me. This is back when you did VHS tapes <laughs> as training tapes. Um, and, you know, you had to hire a videographer. Um, there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this and go, wait, what? You, you know, and you had to formally like actually tape these trainings and stuff. And I started this business n- having no idea what I was going to do. And of course, I had no idea how to market there, there, there was no internet. And, you know, so marketing was kind of all the traditional ways of marketing. And I remember reaching out to some people. And when I was a lawyer, whenever I would call somebody, if I didn't get them immediately on the phone, they called within an hour, almost without fail. I was somebody that they couldn't ignore. Because typically I was opposing counsel, I was, you know, either their counsel, whatever I had to say was, I'm doing air quotes now, important, right? Because of the position that I had in that, you know, million dollar case. And what I found out really quickly was, yeah, they did not return my phone calls in the same, with the same urgency or at all. And you know, I would laugh because I recognize like, wow, yeah, I am not that I'm not in a position anymore that people respond to in that way, that I have to earn people's trust now. I have to, I have to start over from the very beginning. And if I'm going to do business, if I'm going to own my own business, I have to operate in a completely different way than the way I was operating as an attorney which was, you know, through qualities and traits that I did not want to continue. I was a jerk, basically, super effective as a lawyer and very ineffective in the world and in relationships. This past weekend, I went to hear the monk and author Gelong Tubton speak on his new book, The Handbook for Hard Times. He says that we humans spend a lot of time between the polarities of hope and fear. And by hope in this context, he's referring to the expectation that something or someone will come along and make us feel better and rescue us from our discomfort. So hope that the world will give us happiness and the fear that it may not. He reminds us that our ancient hunter-gatherer instinct means we're genetically programmed to actually worry about scarcity most of the time. So I asked Tubton a question about why so many people push themselves to strive, and he talked about the habitualization of wanting. We get a thing, and we've created a habit to want the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. So there he is sitting in his burgundy robes, a vision of calm, and he said the biggest addiction can be to our own thinking. That's right, we can become addicted to our own thinking. Remember when Shannon was talking about her persistent thoughts about feeling like a loser and like she'd failed and that she'd lost status because people wouldn't take her calls anymore when she wasn't a big important litigator? Let's go deeper into this part of the conversation and see what happened with Shannon's thinking as she left her corporate job. After I recovered from the fall, and you'll laugh at this, uh, I went back to work. I went back to work with a back brace, of course. I had such severe back pain 
that I had to practice law, lay, I'm going to laugh, laying on my office floor because my back hurt so much. So imagine I'm in a, you know, a full suit, lawyer suit. We didn't really wear pantsuits in those days. So I'm in a skirt and I might've taken my pumps off, but I am laying on the floor because I'm in so much pain and I probably have closed the door hoping that no one is going to pop their head in because I literally look ridiculous, but I can't, I, I can't practice any other way. So I am still, uh, despite the injury and the forced time recovered, I am still back at work and it doesn't take me long. It takes me about three months to say, okay. I'm out. I'm going to tap out. I'm really going to do this. What happens for the next two years was an identity crisis. I did not know who I was without saying, I'm a lawyer. What do you do? I'm a lawyer, not I practice law. I'm a litigator. I am a lawyer. Oh, and all the respect and shiny things that I thought that that was going to bring me. I no longer could say that. In fact, that was one of the most awkward questions to answer. What do you do? Uh, nothing right now, literally. Oh, you between jobs? Hmm, kinda. <laughs> like, like literally nothing on the runway. I'm not looking for a job. I'm doing nothing. The overwhelming feeling that I had during that time was of gut-wrenching fear that this would never change, that this would never go away, that I literally would never be able to do something where I would really get into a state of flow, where I would love what I was doing so much and not, and at the same time not kill myself doing it. The fear that nobody would hire me, um, the distrust of myself, because I knew that the, the drive to do versus be was so ingrained. And the drive to come up with some more shiny pieces, like a little kid showing their mom a little blue ribbon, look, I earned this ribbon. Do you see me now? Do you love me now? Like that is never going to happen. And that was this slow kind of unfolding where I just spent months in despair uh, at definitely the lowest part of my life. There were times when I didn't want to live anymore. And I, I thought about that. It was, it was gut-wrenching. It was definitely the most lonely, challenging time of my life. And I, I felt like a complete loser. Like I had left this amazing career that had so much potential because I couldn't hack it. I couldn't do it in a way that other people seemed to be able to do it. I didn't want to become the partners that I saw and I didn't know how to, to practice law and not be that way. Um, I could not see any light in the tunnel.
And so I had to back out of the tunnel. And it just felt like, like I had quit, like I had quit life. I'd quit everything that I had known. Really the most dramatically uncomfortable place to be with myself. Shannon's not alone in her identity freefall after leaving a career. Ex-Disney executive Dr. David Yudis from episode 59 had a similar experience. If you haven't listened to David's episode, woo, another one to queue up after this one. You're welcome. In a nutshell, David pushed himself to the absolute brink during an intense period at Disney, and he was loving it. It was super fun, but he was tired. He just kept telling himself, I just need to get through to the holiday, and then I'll fill my tank. Then I'll recharge. Well, his body had other plans, and David collapsed and was a hair's breadth from dying. I asked him to expand on what he was thinking during that time of pushing himself so hard. What was going through his mind? First of all, right after the experience, meaning coming out of the the ER and and kind of getting through the weekend that happened after that and, and going back, do you know that I didn't tell anybody about it? I did not, because it happened right as we hit a holiday, I didn't have to explain it because we were off for a few days. So I was in the ER right at the holiday. So nobody knew about it. It wasn't like I missed any work or anything. The Monday that came after, I might've gone to the doctor that, that afternoon or evening to have staples taken out of my head or something. But I didn't tell my boss, I didn't breathe a word about it because I thought, oh my God, if they think that this happened to me, they're gonna pull everything away and say, he can't keep this going. He can't keep this up. So I share that with you because on one hand, I wasn't in Montgomery, Mandy. I kind of, I didn't necessarily jump right back into the fire, but I also didn't allude to the fact that I had just come within a whisker of death. But the reality was I knew I couldn't keep going like that. Now I'll take you to when I left, which was probably, it was like four years later. I mean, it was some time before I ultimately left. And when I left, I didn't know who the I was. My, it felt like my complete identity had been lost. Oh my God, it, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. And I don't think I'm the only one who's felt that at all. I, I think I'd seen other people who had gone through similar, but, but for me, it was like, it was devastating. I, I just felt like I had no identity. In fact, I felt like I had to fight to prove that I'm actually still somebody. And I would say that was like a two-year journey, at least after, to to re-integrate, reconnect with who I was as a person. And that was a hard journey. I'm trying to think of like, you know, nice things I can pull out of it. There aren't. There aren't any nice things at all. It was horrible. It was horrible. I just felt, I felt embarrassed in front of my family. I felt like I was worthless. I felt like nobody else was going to want to connect with me, work with me. Like I, I, as if my magic was all about where I was. That was a great learning though. The magic wasn't about where I was. The magic was inside. But I didn't realize that on leaving. It took me two years to find that again, 
to realize that, to accept it, and then to begin to use it. And once I did, I started to fly. I want to bring Gelong Tubten back into this conversation to offer a perspective on the power of our thoughts. He says that according to Buddhist philosophy, there are approximately 84,000 emotions. Who? Who knew? And those 84,000 emotions boil down to three. Fear, desire, and anger. We are all driven by a fear of not getting what we want or of getting what we don't want. Okay, that's so good. I'm going to say that again. We're all driven by a fear of not getting what we want or of getting what we don't want. And then the Hollywood-grade stories form in our heads. I'm afraid no one will hire me again. I'm scared that they'll take my workload away if I tell my boss that I nearly died of stress during the holidays. Or deep down, I'm scared I'm a loser. I can't hack it. I melted down, so I'm weak. How come my colleagues can keep going? What is it about me? And because so many of us are habitualized doers and maybe have even used those feelings and stories as fuel to achieve in the past, what happens when you can't? When you're burnt out, for instance, laid up in bed, recovering and unable to do to cover up the emptiness and the uncertainty of the present moment. Well, then you're stuck with yourself, stewing in your own juices. I found that so hard to be with myself when I was recovering from burnout. I desperately sought out all the experts who would pony up a solution to get me back to the old me, successful me, the winning me stat. I remember I had this one-on-one session with this well-known author of a burnout book. And at the end of our session, she looked me straight in the eye and said, Mandy, what if this is the best you're ever going to feel? Give up hope. Surrender. Ooh. That got my overachiever hackles up. No effing way. I would not give up on my story that I had to be a permanent doer, a hyper-efficient person, that one day I was going to make it and feel successful enough. There was no way this could be it. All the sunk cost, so many similar things to what Shannon was talking about. Like, I didn't work this hard to only come this far. No way. What I didn't understand was that resistance to what is. The fact that I was burnt out and scared meant I was living between those polarities that Tubton mentions, hope that the world or an expert would give me a solution, and the fear that no one was coming, and the fear that this was as good as it was ever going to get. I didn't see that I was caught in the habit of grasping, where nothing, including me, was ever good enough. Let's get back into the conversation where Shannon shares some thoughts on what brought her relief as she started to recreate herself after leaving her big lawyer job. I always thought of myself as a lone wolf, and maybe because I was, you know, the only female. But what really helped me in this utter place of the shitstorm was joining, was the ability I'm not even sure how I managed it, honestly, but it was reaching out and joining. And it was a small community that I'm I'm no longer even associated with. Um, It was through a church that I had been attending. And it was someplace that I could 
go and belong that was consistent. So every Sunday, I knew I had a place where I could meet some people. It would be fun. It would be stimulating. I would hear an interesting sermon or talk. And it was a grounding. Otherwise, my days and my weeks would go on forever. I ended up making friends there and then having those anchors. Because really, all, all most of all the people that I knew were in my lawyer world. And they were still spinning at a thousand miles an hour and frankly quite pissed that I that I stepped out of the tunnel. But it was the ability to reach out and join. And I think for me, that still can be a challenge. It's still an edge for me. And it's still something that is really soothing and fills me full of love, is being able to join. I don't want to. Absolutely. I mean, like there's a push inside of me that's like, ah, I got this. No, I'm good. I can hunker down, deal with it. And the truth is I, I couldn't. You know, maybe I could have, but it was kind of a shit show. So I don't think I could. And joining really pushed me in a direction towards healing. I'm currently doing Jessica McGuire's Vegas Nerve program, and I wanted to share something on the back of Shannon's first tip around joining. That intense sympathetic arousal that we get during a stressful period in our bodies is meant to be temporary. We're not meant to stay stuck in survival mode for extended periods. It really takes a toll on our bodies, on our sleep, on our digestion, on loads of things. So when that happens, like it did for Shannon and for me and also for David Yudis and so many of my guests, it dysregulates the nervous system, which can cause all kinds of problems in the body and also in mental health. So I've been learning that social factors like feeling isolated or operating in that lone wolf mode that Shannon mentioned can also cause or contribute to nervous system dysregulation. When Shannon talked about joining or seeking community during her healing, even though it felt foreign and awkward for her, she was taking a really healthy step. Jessica McGuire says that we are not wired to flourish on our own or in systems that marginalize us. We tend to isolate in hard times, don't we? So McGuire says that when we attune to another person in a group, for instance, and allow our internal state to shift, mirror neurons and resonant circuits kick in in the brain and in the body, and strengthening those relationships during those crucial times when you feel dysregulated can really help you to find your feet again. So that's food for thought. Before we hear Shannon's final tip, here's some important background that might help. One of the things I often experience in coaching is when someone breaks out of that intensity tunnel, as Shannon called it, there can be a lot of grief and sadness, not just for an identity and an ideal that's been lost, but also for how someone has treated themselves over the years. One of the big things that came to me is the slow but shocking realization of the depth of self-abandonment. Like as I went through this, just this shit show and felt these feelings, the level of self-abandonment 
and self-deception. Like I couldn't even grasp the depth. They would come in little snippets because it was so vast. It was so vast and literally left me spinning with, who am I? Like, who am I that could deceive myself so dramatically? Who am I that prides themselves is being full of integrity and being honest? So for your entire life, you've deceived yourself and, and hence deceived everyone else because you couldn't be honest about something you weren't even aware of. The depth of my own self-abandonment was jaw-dropping, shocking. Honestly, it still, it still is to me. I still have moments where I look back at that period of time and look back and look back at now and my ability to self-abandon. We can operate in the world trying to earn somebody else's love. I mean, for me, it was so much about earning my mom's love, trying to get her to see me, trying to get her to recognize me, trying to get her to validate me, that I would do anything, um, completely abandon who I was. Uh, you know, I didn't come out as queer because it would be so upsetting to my mother. Oh my God, are you kidding me? It's like even verbalizing that is so painful. I was recruited so intensely into making sure that she was okay that I completely didn't even recognize that I had my own needs, that I was a separate person from my mother. It was not my job to take care of her or to constantly meet her needs in the world. And we can do that with everybody. You know, we can do that with a boss where we can run ourselves into the ground so that we could prove to that boss that we're worthy. We can do that with, with partners. You know, it's the ability to step back and say, well, hang on a second. What do I actually want here? Like, what do I want? And really getting in touch with that. That sometimes is a really hard question for me to answer. You know, my, my life as a lawyer, my life as a firefighter was all about meeting others' needs in a time of intensity. And I, and I love that. And still, as a coach, you know, it's, it's similar in that, you know, you're paying really close attention to someone else's needs. So that's a muscle that has been worked out a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a highly prized muscle. But the, the ability to actually go inside and say, hey, what do I want? You know, how can I work out asking for what I want? Um, you've got to know what you want before you can ever ask for what you want. To me, it was it was like it was like a non-step to self-abandonment. I didn't know anything else. I grew up in the soup of self-abandonment. 
So you know I love book recommendations, and I can guarantee that in pretty much every episode, I'm going to geek out on some facts and book recommendations, and this is no different. So one resource I'm reading right now is Dr. Nicole LaPera's self-discovery workbook, How to Meet Yourself. It's a really good resource for getting stuck into some of what Shannon is unpacking here. You grab your tea, you grab a pen, and you get to work. Meeting ourselves especially as an identity and way of life is shifting, requires awareness and a lot of self-compassion. Self-compassion. Yeah, did anybody else find that tricky at the beginning? Or maybe you're just exploring it for the first time. So here's a funny clip of what Shannon says about self-compassion when she was just starting to explore it. It was like, oh, are you kidding me? My God, what? is that get over it oh like that was like the tough firefighter lawyers like what oh my god no self-compassion I can give compassion to other people but I don't need it I'm good that felt not just unattainable but it I would vacillate between it being ridiculous and semi-repulsive like you want me to what Ugh, god no that's self-indulgent. My God, no, who wants to be self-indulgent? You know, for me, I think the big turning point in that was becoming a parent and seeing this little being. But I also think that firefighting being such a caring profession really allowed me to see how with a complete stranger, I could be so present and so loving and and give them that compassion. And, and really, I think it was during that work that I began to see how I could take care of patients that we saw, I could take care of the guys on my crew and I could also take care of myself. And I would allow myself a little peeling away of, of self-compassion and until that kind of grew to maybe a little slice. The word still has a little trigger for me and is still like, there's a part of me definitely that thinks that's wimpy. I think I've I've grown certainly that it's not repulsive to me the concept but yeah I think it's I think it was the practice of being present and compassionate with others in times that were really stressful that allowed me to see that I could actually do that for myself. Can you start cultivating some self-compassion? And if that's tough, perhaps doing it little by little the way that Shannon did, seeing compassion for others, seeing opportunities for compassion in your work or in your family, in your community, and then starting to realize that you can give yourself some of that compassion too, like Shannon did. Gelong Tubten says that hard times can make us more kind. I went from being so angry with my burnt out body for letting me down during a busy period to taking time every day to practice gratitude for all that my body does for me every day. Thank you, body, 
Thank you. Let's close out today's episode with a brick of wisdom from Shannon. In case you're feeling like you're in a cocoon phase where you kind of feel like the soup not having emerged yet into a butterfly. Allowing myself to go through that period. And we all know people who are continuing in that same job that I left. They are continuing to white knuckle. They're miserable, right? It absolutely gets better. And in fact, there's a part of me that thinks that that was a necessary step in my evolution to be who I am now. And so that I can recognize that very face, either when I'm dipping back into it or when people around me want to dip back into it. And it's so hard to know that when you're in the soup, but just feeling into that, there, there are people out there that have gone through this. You are not the only other person that has done this. It's hard as hell. And it doesn't feel like it now, but it will absolutely get better. Much, much better. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Good thing I had therapy yesterday. If you want more of Shannon and you haven't heard her first episode, number 53, please go back and listen and you'll find her website in the show notes. Before you head off into your day, two things. First, send your body some gratitude for all that it does for you. Did you know, here's the geek again, did you know that the average heart beats 103,680 times per day? Respect. And second, after sending your body some love, who do you know who needs to hear this episode? Thank you so much in advance for sharing. And before you head back into your day, hit the follow button for Enough, the podcast, so you never miss an episode. I'm in the process of creating a new season for you right now. So episode drops are a little bit wonky at the moment. So thanks for your grace as me and my elves work behind the scenes, making more magic for you. As ever, thank you so much for listening. I'm still gobsmacked by that 103,680 beats a day. Wow. Respect, dear heart.